Christopher Bonner teaches courses covering African-American politics and culture, slavery and emancipation in the Atlantic world. Dr. Bonner is an associate professor in the history department at the University of Maryland. He graduated with a Bachelor of Arts from Howard University and received his Ph.D. from Yale. Professor Bonner's first book is titled Remaking the Republic, Black Politics and the Creation of American Citizenship. He writes in the introduction that his book is rooted in the extensive published record of antebellum black protest. Dr. Christopher Bonner, how did you get interested in history? Uh, yeah, I think that the biggest thing for me is that I, I had great teachers. And so uh, I sort of saw myself as a historian primarily in terms of seeing myself as a as a history teacher. And, and the reason that I chose that path, I think, is because of the people who I worked with. I had, um, you know, I, I think back to high school when I took AP U.S. history, my, my teacher, Craig Blackman, was... Uh, just really engaging. And, and one of the things that he did that was distinctive was that he asked us to put together uh, group projects and often those those projects took the, the, the form of films. And so I would work with friends in the course and we would um, talk together about how we wanted to, to enact or embody some of the history that we were uh, engaging with, you know, like a, a debate about whether the United States or whether the colonies should rebel against Britain in, in forming the American Revolution. And so that kind of like participation really got me excited about history and, and, and thinking about the kinds of work I could potentially do as a history teacher. Uh, and that continued in, in college. My uh, main advisor at Howard University was Edna Medford, uh, who I still remember uh, meeting the first day that I, I visited. And, and I said, you know, I'm thinking about going to law school. And she said, no, I think you're going to go to grad school and you'll be a historian. And, and you know, she was sort of joking, but I think that that uh, spur really got me thinking about what I could do as a as a historian. And and the biggest thing was seeing how much she enjoyed talking with students about the past, and and that was what really I think drew me in. Not only the content and and you know the the, the stories and the people uh, who lived in the past, but that opportunity to have the kinds of conversations that I had in my courses uh, to, to continue to do that and make that my career. So I think that um, the, the, the spur of those teachers, I think, really, really put me in a position that I'm in now. Where did you grow up? Where'd you do that uh, high school work? Yes, I grew up in uh, Chesapeake, Virginia, uh, southeast of Virginia, just above the North Carolina border and just in from the beach. Uh, and then I made my way to Howard. My, my dad went to Howard for a few years and that was sort of the, the place that I, I remember visiting the, the first time and it felt like this is, this is a place where I want to be. It felt like a, a home. And I I'd visited a bunch of other universities and applied to a bunch of places and I had other options, but that was the one that felt like it, something about the, the space gave me a feeling that was similar to the feeling that I'd had um, down in Chesapeake. And so I was I was glad to be able to do that. What was the first person in history that really got your attention? Hmm. Um, that's really interesting. I, one of the one of the the, the books that I recall reading uh, early on is uh, a book by Benjamin Quarles 
from the 60s, I believe. It's called The Colored Patriots of the... Uh, no, I'm sorry. It's called The Negro in the American Revolution. And it's still, I think, one of the best books on that subject, on black military service during the war. And Quarrel's book is, is sort of filled with all of these vivid figures. Um, you know, one that I can think of in particular is, is Peter Salem, a, a, an African-American who was enslaved and negotiated with his owner to uh, gain his freedom if he were to serve in the war. And, and one of the first questions that I, you know, I, I think uh, uh, one of the first historical questions that I was really interested in trying to explore was the question of how African-Americans made choices about the Revolutionary War. Like, we know that there were a number of black folks who ran to the British and sought freedom there. We know that there were a number who sought opportunities uh, with the Continental Army when those opportunities were available. And so trying to sort of parse those decisions and get a sense of what African-Americans wanted and how exactly they tried to pursue it, that was one of the one of the driving questions for me. And I think Peter Salem's story really helped me get a sense of the, the, the negotiations that were involved in in that kind of process, but also the the stakes. Uh, and this is what I, I teach my students today: is that it freedom won in war or freedom pursued through war is just incredibly risky, and it's it's really important. And and I think it's really powerful to to see that someone like Peter Salem was willing to take that risk knowing that he might die in this effort to try to get his freedom. But that's how valuable, that's how meaningful freedom was to him. And so that's, that's, a, that's a story that uh, stuck with me early and, and has sort of stayed with me in, in my uh, teaching. When I was uh, reading your book, Remaking the Republic, one of the names that popped off the page was somebody that I grew up hearing about all the time in my town in Indiana, uh, Crispus Attucks. There's a high school in Indianapolis mm -hmm. named after him. Who was he, and what impact did the revolution have on him? Yeah, Crispus Attucks. You know, uh, in a way, I you know we could reframe that last question as like, what impact did Crispus Attucks have on the revolution? Attucks was uh, a worker, a person of African descent. We think he was of mixed African and uh, Native American parentage, um, and he was a worker in Boston who was involved in the protest in 1770, uh, challenging the presence of British troops in uh, Boston Harbor. And, and for working folks in Boston, folks like Attucks, the presence of the British was a, a sort of um, muffler on commerce. Business was, was down. And so people were stressed out. People were angry. People were, in, in some cases, in dire straits. And so workers were coming together and, and challenging the presence of these British soldiers and, and addicts and uh, a group of other working men in Boston got into a confrontation with British soldiers. And, you know, it's not exactly clear who fired first or who was the main aggressor. But uh, in the aftermath of this confrontation, the British soldiers fired their guns and five men were killed, including Crispus Attucks. Uh, and what's fascinating about so so Attic becomes or, or became a, a, an early uh, figure who was seen as a martyr for the revolutionary cause. What's most fascinating uh, and and how it comes up in my book is that Christmas Attic becomes a symbol that black activists would use 
later in the in the 19th century, and they would use addicts as a symbol to, to make the argument that they belonged in the United States as much as anyone else, that they embodied in this figure of Christus Addict, this person of African descent, that black people had been central to the earliest struggles for freedom uh, in what became the United States. And so addicts for African-American activists was he was a marker of the injustice of policies that were excluding or uh, rendering African-Americans unequal. Uh, the argument was we have made this nation. Addicts represent that fact. And so we should be treated as people who have made this nation. And so he, he's, he's, a, he's a really critical and, and central figure in, in black politics uh, into the 1840s and 1850s. And, and, and what's especially interesting is that addicts, uh, so black Bostonians start to organize uh, celebrations that they call Christmas Addict Day. Uh, and they celebrate the, 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 the memory, essentially, of Christmas Addicts and use that as a broader phenomenon to protest uh, all sorts of legal exclusions and, and, and arguments uh, up to and, and beyond the, the Dred Scott decision, which, which uh, claims that African-Americans can never be U.S. citizens. Uh, so addicts becomes a, a really, really uh, powerful political tool for black activists. When you got your Ph.D. at Yale, what was your dissertation? Mm -hmm. uh, so the dissertation was the really the, the seed of the book, and uh, it was about African-Americans and their, uh, their discourse surrounding citizenship and what they were trying to do with the concept of citizenship. The, the, uh, the central idea there and one that has followed through into the book was that citizenship had an uncertain meaning and that African-Americans were wrestling with the concept of citizenship. And I've, I've refined some of those ideas a little bit further, but that that uncertainty surrounding citizenship was at the heart of the dissertation. What I was really interested in when I was writing that project was, and, and the title of it, I think, was designed to suggest this, the title was The Price of Citizenship. And what I was really interested in when I was writing that project was what are the limitations or what are the sort of restrictions or, or what are the problems that citizenship might present to African-Americans? And again, some of this has, has sort of made its way into the book, but the, the way that one of the ways that I was thinking about this was that black folks were making arguments that they were citizens, but also they were encouraging other black people to embody or to, to, reflect this image of a good citizen. And part of what that involved was uh, temperance or uh, part of that, part of what that involved was frugality. Part of what that involved was this really high standard of behavior, uh, of respectable behavior that activists were suggesting was necessary for black people to show themselves as citizens. The problem with that is that, you know, a person should be if, if a person is truly entitled to equality, I would argue they shouldn't need to not drink alcohol in order to enjoy their rights. But the arguments that activists were making in pursuit of, of rights or equality or status, the arguments 
often involved this claim that black people had to meet a particular behavioral standard in order to be recognized as citizens. And so that's a piece of, and that's a small piece of the price. It's like, what is, what are people being asked to give up uh, or exchange for the rights or the protections of citizen status? And so that was, um, yeah, that was, that was a project that was, I think, similar in a lot of ways to the dissertation, uh, to the, the book that uh, was ultimately published, but uh, was different in terms of some of those points of emphasis. And I think that was one of the, one of the main differences. What did you learn growing up in your family about history? Huh. Um, you know, I, I think that we, we, we talked a, a, a good bit about, you know, I, I think my parents were always really involved and, in, and, in, and just thinking about, you know, what my, what my courses were, what was going on in my courses. And one of the things that I, I learned and I've continued to, to see and appreciate is that, um, my parents were often just as excited about the stuff that I was learning as I was. And I think so, you know, on a on a really broad level, not in terms of like actual specific historical content. One of the things that I learned, I think, was how fascinating history could be as a subject to a lot of different people. Um, I know that my dad really enjoyed his history courses um, when he was in uh, in school and, and into college. And I think that that kind of um just like the, the sense that like, oh, this is this is a cool thing to, to study, a cool thing to think about is, is one of the things that I that I learned. And I think subsequently I've, I've uh, been able to talk more with uh, particularly some of my uh, the family on my on my dad's side uh, and aunt on my dad's side who has uh, done a little bit of genealogical work and has tried to sort of dig into the history of, of their family. And and I think that it's you know, it's fascinating just to think about um, what we're able to know, but also the limitations of our knowledge. And this is one of the one of the sort of fundamental challenges of of black genealogical work is is that uh, records were often designed to remove sort of evidence of family ties and 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 uh, distance people from their families. And so I think that it's um, there's a way in which it's, I think, particularly rewarding when African-Americans are able to, to trace back a few generations and, and identify connections there, even when we recognize that the, the evidence is so limited. There's something really powerful about that. And so the, the, there's something there about not just like the, you know, the fact that history is a cool subject, but the fact that there's a kind of like uh, puzzle solving dimension to this or problem solving dimension to this that, that's, that's kind of appealing, that um, you know, finding the uh, the hidden, I think, can can be an interesting aspect of of just thinking about the past. When you're in the classroom, when do you see your students paying attention? <laughs> uh, hopefully, all the time. <laughs> but I, I think that you know the the thing that uh, one of the things that I I often try to do is to um, push them to, to, to argue with me or to argue with one another. And so I, I, I do a lot of, I do a lot of like, I'll ask a lot of what I, what I would call bad questions or uh, I'll ask a lot of like devil's advocate type questions. There's a, um, or, or I'll pre- present something that 
I think is designed to encourage them to, to, to challenge what's being presented. There's a, um, you might be familiar with the statue in, in DC, uh, uh, the, the Lincoln statue that commemorates emancipation that was erected in 1876. Uh, and it shows this image of, of Lincoln uh, standing above a kneeling enslaved person. And, and the enslaved person is the, it's a man who's sort of breaking his chains and is starting to rise up. And it's this image of Lincoln as the benevolent uh, offerer of freedom to African-Americans. And <clears throat> that kind of image, you know, I, I think that there's, there's, a, there's a really interesting and, and, and complex history surrounding that statue that we could get into if, if you'd like. But what I do with that image, you know, after we've talked about emancipation during the Civil War and the processes by which enslaved people actually fought for and secured their freedom, sometimes I like to just throw that image up on a, on a PowerPoint and, and ask them what they think about it. Uh, how do you feel about this as, as an image of emancipation? Uh, and, and usually that gets them, I, I think, paying attention on the most basic level because they have to look at the image, but also paying attention because it's, it's provocative. It's, it's clearly a bad representation of the history of emancipation or an incomplete representation of that history. And they are, I think, drawn to, like they're like urged by that, misrepresentation, urge to recall the things that we've talked about already uh, and to, to speak about them. And so, yeah, like, like telling them the stuff, telling them the history, I think, is the foundation for this. But then what I try to do is to offer them something that sparks them to, to recall that history and to challenge a flawed depiction. And so, you know, I'll put that image up and say, what do you think about this? And then I'll, you know, they'll say, well, you know, this isn't really complete. It, it really looks like Lincoln was the, the, the one person in charge of emancipation. I'll say, well, Lincoln did issue the Emancipation Proclamation, didn't he? Does that, does that matter or, or does that not? Where should that fit into this kind of image? And so, you know, continuing to push them to develop their arguments and, and to, to, to bring the content to their arguments by um, arguing with them. I think that's one of the things that uh, gets them involved, uh, and, and is you know exciting to me. I I can I think I can give a pretty good lecture, but I'd much rather have a have a discussion. I just it just feels like a much richer experience for for me and for the students. Well, I was drawn to uh, want to talk with you when I watched the six part series on CNN on Abraham Lincoln. And mm -hmm. there were I counted some 25 different experts that they used during that series. Uh, and I had never seen you before, but you were <laughs> you, well, but you were used quite a bit. And it was and I, yeah. I just wanted to find out what that experience was like. Why did you participate? And uh, did you mm -hmm. think you were treated fairly in that uh, in that series? Yeah, I, I thought it was a, I thought it was a pretty good documentary. I think that it was. Uh, you know, I, I think your your point is is well made that there you know there are a lot of really well known Lincoln experts and and it's uh um it's cool for me to be seen alongside folks like you know like Eric Boner who uh know the president Harold Holzer people who know President Lincoln uh, and know the Civil War era better than uh most people alive so it was neat i think on on a on a on the most basic level for me to be in there but i i, I do think it was 
as I, what I say to what I say to um, people when they ask me, "What did you think about it?" I often say, "Well, I, I don't think I said anything I don't believe. Uh, like I, I don't I don't feel like I got a an edit that made me look like I was arguing against things that I I didn't want to argue or whatever it might be. Um, I I like the way that it was presented. I I did the documentary that I think because you know on one level. I just think Lincoln is a really fascinating figure. I think that his uh, complexity in bringing together or trying to bring together his moral convictions and his uh, responsibilities or his obligations as president is fascinating. I think the evolution of those moral convictions is is really compelling. The The movement from a person who is skeptical about or opposed to slavery as an institution for the United States as a whole toward a person who is using all of his power as commander in chief to eradicate slavery. That's a fascinating evolution. And I think that it's, I think that, you know, the civil war era generally is really interesting to study because it's this, test for a nation, but also what that means is that it's a test for individuals. And and the idea that someone could the idea that someone could refine their moral principles and move from being move from saying anti slavery things to doing abolitionist things to actually taking steps to end slavery in the midst of that crisis, that's that's really compelling. Lincoln shifted from opposing slavery to acting to end slavery as he was also trying to govern a nation in, at war and to organize that war. And so I think that's that's part of what draws me to Lincoln as a figure and drew me to this uh, opportunity to talk about him. And, and uh, what I think was, was most – one of the things that I think was most interesting was that the, the producers of the, of the film, when they reached out to me, they said that what they wanted to try to do was to try to break down some of the persistent um, myths surrounding Lincoln, and, and including this idea that uh, what I think is still in, in some cases the, the, uh, a kind of popular understanding of Lincoln as the great emancipator. Uh, and so, so doing the kind of work that I do in the classroom, recognizing that, yes, Lincoln did embrace emancipation. He did issue the Emancipation Proclamation, but the Emancipation Proclamation itself did not free slaves. The Emancipation Proclamation created a doorway through which enslaved people could walk to freedom. But enslaved people had to leave plantations. Enslaved people had to find their ways through the South. Enslaved people had to make it to the Union lines in order to actually enjoy the freedom that was offered in the Emancipation Proclamation. And so uh, recognizing that more complicated history surrounding Lincoln, I think, was was uh, was a key part of what drew me into the documentary. And I think that it the, the film did a, a really good job of, of uh, illuminating that. So, yeah, I, I was I was glad to be a part of it. Go back to the Freedman statue in Lincoln Park in Washington, mm-hmm. which uh, actually came close to being torn down during uh, some of their most recent uh, mm-hmm. demonstrations. Uh, Frederick Douglass, as you well know, was there during the dedication, right. and there were 25,000 people there. If that were happening today, would somebody like Frederick Douglass show up to commemorate that statue? I, 
would someone like Frederick Douglass show up to commemorate it? I think yes. And I think this is, you know, similarly to, similarly to Lincoln, what's, what's so fascinating about Douglass was how uh, astute and, and sort of careful he was as a thinker. Uh, what Douglass said, and so I think that what Douglass said in that speech in 1876 dedicating uh, or at the dedication of, of the statue at, at Lincoln Park, that reflects the kind of complexity that I think we would all benefit from uh, in our view and our thinking of, of Lincoln. And Douglas says something along the lines of uh, at, at many points throughout his presidency and, and really throughout his political career, Lincoln was the president for white Americans. Uh, Douglas urges his audience to recall that Lincoln insisted early on that the purpose of the Civil War was to save the Union. Douglas reminds uh, his listeners that Lincoln was hesitant and reluctant to embrace emancipation as policy and to embrace black enlistment as policy in 1861 and 1862. But Douglas also recognizes, and he, he uses this refrain that he turns to again and again, uh, where he says that under his hand, under Lincoln's guidance, Various things happened that improved circumstances for African-Americans. Under his hand, the process of black enlistment was allowed to go forth. Under his hand, emancipation was able to uh, emerge and, and, and really be entrenched as a policy. The 13th Amendment was uh, passed in Congress. And, and, and so that, that recognition of Lincoln as a person who was limited – but was also evolving, I think is important. And that recognition of Lincoln as a person who did not do all that he might have done, perhaps, for African-Americans, but did do quite a lot for African-Americans, that kind of complexity uh, is really important in terms of thinking about Lincoln and what he meant for black folks. And so I, I think that Douglas recognized then that Lincoln was an important figure and, and, and what's, you know, at, at this hypothetical dedication that happened in 2021, if the circumstances now are similar to what they were in 1876, in which this statue of Lincoln was funded largely by donations from African-Americans, then I think Douglas or someone like Douglas would recognize that part of what, what is being commemorated in that statue is not just Lincoln and this image of Lincoln as great emancipator. What's being commemorated there is black folks valuing of the connection that they had with the federal government in the civil war era, the black folks insisting that that connection was beneficial to black people and to the nation as a whole. And that that is the kind of thing that's worth remembering. You know, I, I think that that, and you know, we may or may not want to get into this, uh, dive into this too far, but I think that that, what's different about that statue, let me say this a different way. The statue of Lincoln at Lincoln Park, this, this Emancipation Memorial is, as I said, a bad representation of the history of emancipation. 
It's woefully incomplete. But what distinguishes that from a Confederate monument to Robert E. Lee in Richmond, from my perspective, is the purpose at the heart of these two memorials. The statue of Lincoln was funded by black folks in the 1870s because they wanted to have people remember the connection between the government and African-Americans in the Civil War era. They wanted to remember a history of racial equality and of people in power moving toward racial justice. Statues of Robert E. Lee and other Confederate statues that were erected in the late 19th and early 20th centuries were erected as monuments to white supremacy, as statements that were insisting that certain people did and other people did not belong in public space. And so even though, and unfortunately, the statue of uh, the, the Lincoln statue is not a good depiction of history, the history that it represents is not only the history of emancipation, but the history of black organizing, black contribution, black memory of the Civil War era. That's a history worth preserving. And I think the history of white supremacy and memory of the lost cause is not. Back to you. We have a couple minutes left, and then back to your book. And this is out of context. Yeah. Your book, meaning uh, named uh, "Remaking the Republic." Uh, there's a lot of stuff that we could talk forever about in the book. But one of the things that just jumped out to me was the story of the trains around Philadelphia, the hospitals mm-hmm. in the suburbs uh, around the Civil War, and the fact that this was the North. Explain the background on what I just said. Yeah, so uh, really the, the background of this is, uh, I think, outlined quite well in a, in a book by uh, the historian Elizabeth Pryor, uh, who notes that the origins of the language and the practices of Jim Crow segregation, those origins were in the North in the 1830s. And the root of this is the creation of separate train cars for black people. White Northerners were anxious about and in some cases uh, outraged or disgusted by the possibility of traveling in a confined space with black people. Uh, And there were all these images and all these stereotypes about uh, black people sort of having noxious odors or black people, uh, black men particularly, having lascivious intent. And, and posing a danger to white people, specifically white women, uh, in the confined spaces of train cars. And those ideas and the, the practices of segregation on the rails, those ideas persisted through the antebellum period. And so the story that I tell is about black folks, and in particular I, I talk about William Still, who <clears throat> was uh, a prominent black activist and, and uh operator or or, uh, facilitator of slave escapes uh, out of the South and and through the North uh, in the 1850s, still is visiting soldiers in the suburbs of Philadelphia in the 1860s, black soldiers. And on his way back into the city, into his office, he is told by a train conductor that he has to ride on the platform. Essentially, get out of the car. You can hang on to the back and we'll ride back in. Private train companies in many northern states had the legal right to exclude black people 
from the train cars. And so there's a, there's a larger history here. So William still writes about this and, and organizes a, a, a massive campaign uh, of protests. And, and this is something that takes place across the Northern States. But this is one of the, um, one of the sort of early ways that we can see the variety of black political projects that black folks were not advocating solely for formal political rights, like the right to vote uh, or the right to sit on juries, that black folks were advocating for access to public space. Uh, and this would be one of the main conflicts and, and really uh, crisis points in black politics in uh, the era of emancipation and reconstruction, both in the North and in the South. One of the things that I think is really interesting, though, thinking more broadly about this is that, you know, often your, your question was suggesting the sort of surprise that this is happening in the North. And I think there's often this, this sense that segregation, practices of, of racial segregation are, are a Southern phenomenon, uh, that Jim Crow is a Southern thing. What's really interesting here, when we look at the antebellum period, is that segregation really wouldn't have worked in the antebellum South. The antebellum South, the, the economy and the society of the antebellum South was predicated on white people having close access to black people as enslaved people and deploying those enslaved workers wherever they chose. There was a real proximity between black and white Southerners in the antebellum period. In the antebellum North, where slavery was largely eradicated or at least marginalized as an economic institution, white Northerners were able to, and in many cases did, take steps to segregate black from white. And that's where you can really see, so, so that allows us to see that in, in, in many real ways, the origins of practices of racial segregation could only happen in the northern states because slavery required slavery worked through the close proximity of black and white people uh and so 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 the and in that sense it makes a lot of sense that these practices of segregation and discrimination were happening in the north because there wasn't an economic reason for white northerners to want black folks close to them one last question, mm-hmm. and it has to do with something called the Negro Seaman Act and mm. spending a night in jail. Explain that one, and then we'll close her out. Yeah, this is uh, another sort of uh, really interesting uh, manifestation of, of segregation or exclusion. And this is, this is actually a law that's enacted in the South. Essentially, uh, in the 1830s, South Carolina enacts a series of measures uh, called the Negro Seaman Acts that were sort of like quarantine laws. The law said that if a black sailor came into a southern port, uh, that that sailor would have to either stay on the ship while the ship was in port or be brought to jail. The fear that white southerners were responding to was this fear of abolitionism, of anti-slavery ideas as a kind of contagion, and that black sailors especially 
might bring these anti-slavery ideas into Southern communities and then spread dissent among enslaved people. There is a lot of, so, so the logic behind this or the, the idea behind this was that black sailors might bring in actual pamphlets or actual documents that would spread and, and uh, distribute anti-slavery ideas. There was also the fear that black sailors in their very mobility, their ability to go from a port in New England into Charleston Harbor, the fact that they were able to move, that that would be a sort of contagion, that that might inspire enslaved people to want to try to move in the same way and, and, and therefore to want to try to get free. The, the you know, a couple of things about this that were ridiculous, just, just two that are, that are leaping to mind immediately. One is that enslaved people in the South didn't need inspiration to want to get free. Uh, we know that there was a lot of discourse, there was a lot of action, there were a lot of efforts among enslaved Southerners to try to shape the terms of their labor. Uh, they didn't need an outside force to inspire them to challenge slave owners uh, or even to rebel. One of the other things about this that is ridiculous is that when black sailors were brought off of their ships and into jails, they often would have been confined in jails alongside black Southerners, often enslaved people. And so the bringing of the people into the jail was in some ways a way to allow the kind of communication that Southern lawmakers were reportedly afraid of. And so it was a, it was a series of laws that were essentially really uh, oppressive and and really um, in some ways just demoralizing the idea that uh, a free black person would be confined in a Southern jail uh, was was just a sort of attack on on the idea and on the feeling of freedom that so many African Americans wanted to experience and 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 that that they sought in some ways by going to sea by taking work as sailors. Um, but it was also I, I think a, the the policy is a reflection of how anxious white Southerners were about the institution of slavery and and how worried they were about. Um, the limits of their power, the limits of their control over enslaved people in the South. Dr. Christopher James Bonner is the author of the book Remaking the Republic. He's a professor at the University of Maryland. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you're still in your 30s. Uh, yes, I am. That is, that is correct <laughs> for a few more years. Thank you very much for joining us. All right. Thanks for having me. It's good to talk to you. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.